0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast from me, Mike Figgis, and...
1: And me, Ali Aguilar.
0: And today, uh, I wanted to do a kind of introduction to a very, very special podcast.
1: Well, we're releasing one of your Hollywood conversations with the legendary Bob Rafelson, and uh, I think it's fair to sort of provide some context for it. Okay,
0: so quite a while ago, I mean, sort of, I guess, 25 years ago, maybe even more... So um, I'd done Leaving Las Vegas, I was resident in Los Angeles, and my dear friend Walter Donahue, who along um, with John Borman Borman, co-edited and presented this incredible Faber series called Projections, uh, Filmmakers on Filmmaking, and they said, we'd like you to be guest editor on one edition. And I thought, well, I'm here in Hollywood. What, what a great opportunity. And I was, I'd bought my first really cool digital camera and so forth. And uh, I had a little office at Sony. Small room, in fact. And so I set about setting up these interviews with um, who I consider to be the interesting people in Hollywood. Movies you got and to checkers. pick
1: the interviewees, right? I had complete freedom.
0: Now, the idea was basically to interview them and then transcribe those interviews into, obviously, a piece of literature, which was the guest... Edition of, of um, projections. But like I say, I had a video camera, so I may as well just use the video camera, lock it off, and then I will um, you know transcribe them as if I'm recording just on audio anyway. And so that became this series called Hollywood Conversations for Projections. And I'm going to just read out here a, a list of the people that I interviewed. So in no particular order, it was Mickey Rourke, Tony Kaye, who had just done American History X yeah. and was in the middle of a huge fight with the studio and with uh, Edward Norton, yep. which he lost. And that's an amazing interview. I did Brookheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, I did John Kelly, who was my friend at the time and the head of uh, Sony Pictures and had this legendary um, you know, history. I did Sylvester Stallone, which mm-hmm. was very interesting. Jodie Foster, who then recommended that I do... Mel Gibson Nastasia Kinski who I was always a huge fan of Elizabeth Shue of course I just worked with Robert Downey Jr. who I just worked with Uh, and in fact the interview with Downey was in between prison you know he came out did the interview then went back in again Rosanna Arquette and this is very interesting because Rosanna talks about you know the sexism yeah, in Hollywood, and this is you know I say twenty five to thirty years ago, and so a lot of the interviews I really push this idea of what is the f- female position in Hollywood, and why are there so few good scripts, and, and then Paul Mazerski who was one of my dear friends, who whose historical knowledge of of Hollywood was a very funny and and super, and then uh, Jean Jacques Benec, who was also a frequent visitor to um, Los Angeles at that time, and friends with the circle at the farmer's market that I used to hang in at breakfast with. So, But the one we're going to talk about today is Bob Rafelson, because he had to also become a friend. Um, he did a little cameo in Leaving Las Vegas. Did he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which I'm so proud of, you know. Yeah. A lovely moment. He plays a very humane character in a, in a restaurant. Now, Bob, very eccentric character, so he didn't want to be filmed. So he is the only one that I actually did just record as an audio and of late as i look around my studio and my archives and everything and and i realize i'm sitting on a lot of really interesting stuff that as time passes becomes certainly in the in the wake of the last 30 years of hollywood these in, these interviews to me are more interesting now than they were then they were pretty interesting then but now that time has passed you realize how smart some of these people are yeah in terms of well, you've heard the. the well, I
1: think, th- and we're going to discuss this, but it really shines through, like the intellect uh, that the man had. Uh, you know, it's just not, not just a filmmaker, just sort of a really curious, inquisitive man who sort of also tried to be very self-aware of what was going on mm-hmm. within him and both around him, and who sort of never really maybe bought into the self-importance. Sometimes it's attached with filmmaking. Mm-hmm uh that really shines through
0: yeah so um you know a with great affection i i listened again to this to this interview because for me um, my background is audio and sound and um listening to recordings of people that i've loved and known is far more poignant to me than actually looking at the photograph you know so um it was a real pleasure for me to spend quite a considerable amount of time editing all our ums and ohs and uh him going off to smoke a joint or whatever it was yeah know, that that bob it was all done in his house i used a little i can't remember what did i record it on maybe uh oh a dat machine I had, all right a, a okay port- a portable dat machine and i'd say the quality is not this standard i mean you know because the microphones were just the built-in microphones but it's enough we certainly it's clear what he says yeah, yeah. so um with great pleasure, um, I'd, I'd like to present to you the first of what I hope are many of these kind of interesting retrospective podcasts. So this is uh, me talking to Bob Rafelson a long time ago. Please enjoy.
2: Can you just give me a level? Yeah, I, absolutely I can. Is it okay if I put this somewhat near here and then I can put my feet up? How's that? Does that work okay for you? Can you, right. yeah. can you hear me pretty well?
3: Uh, yeah, I can hear you can hear myself. Okay. Which is
2: great. Okay.
3: Okay, if you want to smoke, do anything?
2: Yes, uh, we'll have a, join, a joint sooner or later. Good. We can stop, no? It's some... No, we just carry on. Okay, go yeah. ahead.
3: Um, so you just showed me a documentary, so-called.
2: It was called Modesty.
3: Why, why did you show me that?
2: Well, because you had asked if uh, you could when you were doing this interview if you could video it and I thought that I'd rather not do it mm-hmm. and then I decided to show you the one time that I had done it the
3: only time
2: uh, the only time and, um, and in this particular instance I was paid for it and I directed it although when it aired in, in France mm-hmm. and, uh, and subsequently in the United States there was no way of knowing that I had directed it mm-hmm. since it was seemingly the work of the interviewer who was a young, at that time, uh, in fact, a young journalist, who subsequently became a quite well-known filmmaker by the name of Camille de Casabianca. So it looks as if it's her uh, uh, making it up, although, in fact, uh, I had quite a bit to do with it.
3: Was it, did you rehearse? No. No. No, so you just kind of blocked it out. But I mean, it it is, it starts off looking like a piece of cinema verite. Yes. you being very bad-tempered. Yes, Um, and then becomes progressively more outrageous. She, by the way, is stunningly attractive.
2: Yes, she's very beautiful, and and the idea of it, I suppose, was that, um, to make it seem legitimate, uh, uh, it was that when she approached me at the door, I covered my face with my hand and said, no, I don't do interviews, but within minutes, Mm -hmm. it's only, what, 15 minutes long, within minutes, of course, I'm lecturing on my style uh, and pontificating outrageously. And uh, that was the idea of it to make it sort of a joke or a travesty of of interviews. Yeah.
3: Where did you find out? Did she find you? Who's idea was well,
2: she it? had actually been a journalist who had interviewed me.
3: Right.
2: and And uh, I took an interest in her, and uh, I liked her quite quite a lot, and I said, uh, why don't you play the part of the interviewer in this little film that I'm going to make? Mm-hmm. And she wanted to do that, and then shortly thereafter, um, this little gig went to her head, and she imagined herself as a real director and became a real director and has gone on to make probably as many films as I've made in my lifetime already. She's made six six movies, some of which are quite celebrated. Mm-hmm. This was made right after Postman. I, I read an ad and. the... In the paper, uh, in the in the Paris Tribune, the Herald Tribune, uh, looking for an apartment. And I decided, like every uh, young man, an American young man, that I wanted to, to uh, at some point in my life, have an apartment in Paris, mm-hmm. and uh, it would be very romantic. and uh, uh, And I decided this was the right time to do that. I took an ad. It turned out to be for a very curious apartment, too, because it was a, a substantial apartment on the Rue des Archives, in the oldest section of Paris. And um, it turned out, and I couldn't speak any, I can speak a little bit of French, but very little, but I can't read any French, but it turned out he had a gigantic library. But the library was entirely devoted to um, psychopathology.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that was what he was. He was a professor of psychopathology, and and I was surrounded by books on on um, sexual perversity, uh, and in any event, I was um, I, a few years prior to that. I had been fired from a movie, and um, I never had a chance to work with a cinematographer, a French cinematographer, Bruno noitien whom I wanted to work with very much. And when I was asked if I would capitulate, submit to an interview. Mm-hmm. I declined unless I could make it myself and make it look as if somebody else were actually making it.
3: Mm. In fact, unless you could control
2: it. Unless I could control it and have some fun doing it, and I charged yeah. uh, some money for it. And the, the, the picture that I had just finished making and showing, uh, although a complete failure in the United States, was a gigantic success in France. Mm. And so they thought that I was a big celebrity and all of that, so... I became sort of the celebrity think piece in a girly magazine. And I charged them uh, a certain amount of money to make it. And in fact, I remember at the very last day, I I actually had it on the film, but I eliminated it because it was a little bit too specious, a little too set up. The idea was that uh, since there was very little money involved, $25,000 I think, there was uh, not not enough to pay anybody. Mm -hmm. So we decided that uh, who, we drew straws, the crew, the sound guy, the camera guy, uh, me, the director, and the, and the one grip, there were th- th- four of us on the crew, to see who would get all the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the grip. Oh, good. Yeah.
3: What did, what did you shoot
2: on? Uh, 16
3: uh-huh. and What do you
2: think about directors getting interviews you've seen? M- movies, guys? Yeah. I'm usually embarrassed for them. Uh, is the way I really feel. Um, When I see, for example, if I'm flipping around the channels, when I see people uh, talking about movies, Mm -hmm. I get off that channel very, very quickly, for one. And for two, I'm embarrassed for even somebody like Scorsese. uh, When he talks about movies, uh, there's something that comes out a bit pompous about it and a bit uh, professorial and... Um, and so knowing, so incredibly, yeah. all the while appearing to be modest, mind you, but so absolutely certain of um, of his own education and his own enlightened point of view, and it annoys me. Uh, uh, I saw a little bit of this in the last couple of weeks. On there was a program. There is a program playing. In on the hundred most uh, famous films, the hundred best films ever made, or something like that. But and 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 as they play these movies now, they uh, they 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 are heralded by some interview, and 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 it might be somebody like Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese talking mm-hmm. about uh, the directors that they admire and, and and this particular film. I don't know. I... There's something slightly self congratulatory, incestuous about yeah. it that bothers me. It's as if you've achieved such status that, in fact, the rest of the world is mm-hmm. desperate to hear your views on Henry King or, mm-hmm. or, or uh, on uh, David Lean or on whoever the director might be of the month yeah. or the year or the century, for that matter. But. Uh, I think you have to be pretty careful about how you say these things. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and don't think that you're automatically in the citadel simply because, um, you, well, to give you an example, uh, so many young directors now are part of, that, uh, of this choice of 100 g- great films. But I wonder if they will be 50 years from now, mm-hmm. or 20 years from now, or whatever. And it's not that I... I resent that history has accorded them this absurd uh, that Rocky Two or One or whatever is considered one of the hundred greatest films, mm-hmm. and Sturgis don't get no 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 points at all mm-hmm. or what have you. It's not that so much because I think if anybody who would draw up a list, there would there would be an enormous disagreement and a certain amount of preciousness to the opinion. Mm-hmm. But 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 more significantly, it seems to me that. You, you just have to—you just have to recognize that time is such an arbe- is the real arbiter mm-hmm. of all of this,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, pictures that are heralded on any given year—it seems to me, well, you know, you're lucky you got—you know—you got an Academy Award or you got a New York Critics' Award or mm-hmm. what have you. But where, how will that film be regarded mm-hmm. twenty years from now, or thirty years from now, or, or, or even longer?
3: How do it, you feel about the way film? is treated as an art form? I mean, do you you feel that it is overvalued?
2: Much. I think that it's overvalued aesthetically. I don't think it's overvalued as a social phenomenon at all. I do think that um, it's quite likely that if two people sit down um, in any culture, anywhere, that one of the first subjects that people can, in fact, discuss mutually and deservedly, as if they were entitled to have the opinion. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what job they have or what level they come from. They could be hairdressers or they could be professors. Mm-hmm. Or they could be uh, Sufis. They could be, they could be anything, in fact. Uh, but they do feel that their experience at the movie is just as valid as, as yours. Mm-hmm. And they're entitled to their opinion. So they get very highly charged about it. Uh, much more highly charged about that for example than they might about international politics mm-hmm. or about um, um, any any uh, uh, social issue that might might be prevalent at mm-hmm. the time say for example female right uh, mm-hmm. or um, or racism or other subjects that are highly charged mind mm-hmm. you. but that's fifth position to mm-hmm. talking about movies is that why film is so highly regarded then? I think it's regarded very, very highly because it's so easy for people to have opinions about In other words, it's an entertainment and, a, and a, that uh, is very inexpensive and that everybody can kind of partake in. And yeah. as a result of that, I think most people, when they come out of a movie theater, talk about whether they like the movie or not. And they talk about it as as uh, validly as, as Roger Ebert might. Mm. Or Steven Spielberg like. For them, they're talking about what they liked and what they didn't like. Mm. And they feel indisputed. Mm-hmm. They feel uh, authoritative. Yeah. Uh, they, they, uh, secure. Yeah, well, they feel quite secure. And if, and, and if they're admonished by their date for what the hell did you like this movie for? I mean, there was nothing in it. Um, they feel quite, quite capable of arguing what they found in it. And it may not be a long sentence, and it may not be a structured point of view, and it may be very fallible, but it's theirs for Mm. the moment anyway. And they feel entitled. Mm. Uh, And movies do that for people. It allows them to feel not only entertained, but very important because of their point of view afterward. You know, if somebody uh, charges across Fifth Avenue Mm -hmm. in New York City, and it's raining out and uh, a cab comes by um, and they're carrying a briefcase and the cab hits the briefcase and spins the person all the way around and they fall in the gutter and brush themselves off unharmed. They can fall down on their knees and say, oh God, thank you, I believe. I've been spared. And have a total belief in God moment. And if a priest who spent 40 years of his life s- studying uh, the most esoteric Christian documents comes to a belief in God, his belief is no more valid than the guy who mm-hmm. was just nearly uh, whacked by a cat. And Steven Spielberg's um, belief in what's good about a movie is no more valid than the hairdressers. And that's the point that I'm trying to, uh, to make.
3: Um, Do you believe that no one has a, has the right to a
2: more superior point of view about... No, it's not that I don't think they have the right. I think everybody has the right, but because everybody has the right, for like some opinion. reason or other, I'm rather bored with this, this opinion. Yeah. You know, I hear it altogether too much from every source. I'm a kind of person who likes to talk about things that I don't know very much about Mm. and get educated when I talk. And it's not that I think I can't get educated about movies, but I've heard enough talk about movies to last an entire lifetime. Mm. I'd rather talk about things I don't know anything about and sit and listen. Do you think films affect people? Do you think we actually do? We
3: make films, they go out, people see them, they have an opinion. Do, Do you think it changes them one way or the
2: other? Or not? Well, I'm sure that certain films affect uh, uh, people in fairly enduring ways, but by and large, uh, I, d- I don't, I, d- I don't think that's... You know, um, there's such an onslaught of mm. sensation and media and mm. in, in, in a Westerners uh, life today that it's very difficult for him to be affected by anything for more than a few minutes because he's affected by so many things. Oh,
3: do we make too many films, do you think? No,
2: no, no I don't... Well, that, that's another issue altogether. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I can watch 140 different channels on that set. Mm-hmm. And, I can wa- and, and I can remember when I first started out, I was a, a story editor in New York and I was working on a fairly cultured program And it was on channel 13 in New York City, which was the the last channel to join the spectrum of channels 2, 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and then finally 13. And it was um, because it was the last, it had to try to find an identity for itself. So it chose, more or less, at the outset to become the cultural station. One, therefore, thought, Quite misleadingly, that if there was a channel 15, 17, 19, 22, 27, 30 on, etc., as there is today, that indeed that the, the level of programming would go up because of the multitude of channels. Uh, that hasn't turned out to be the case. That's, that's, it, it is the case that information is available to you. You can indeed watch Bravo Channel or the Independent Film Channel and see some very interesting things, or the, the, the local educational channel. But in proportion to what else is out there, it hasn't increased one iota. In fact, it's decreased. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, uh, the more information we get, the more degenerate it gets. The more degenerated it becomes. The more, Because in order to stay and to find its niche, to find a, a position popular enough to endure, it has to make concessions to the slightly more popular competitors, slightly more popular, so that it's a feather in one's cap, for example, if you can get a celebrity to appear in an art film. That will eventually be on an art channel. And for me, this is a total loss, uh, not a gain in the culture, because it tends to homogenize things a bit. For example, uh, I deplore the fact that um, uh, compared to when I when I used to go to the movies, I used to go by accident, mind you, I used to go to foreign movies much more than I went to American movies when I was growing up. It just happened to be a theater in the neighborhood that I knew how to cheat my way, steal my way into more hmm. easily than to get into RKO or Lowe's theaters. So I saw a lot of foreign movies. But there are hardly any foreign movies um, that... Are seen in Los Angeles. There are hardly any theaters that uh, show foreign movies. Far fewer now than there were 25 years ago and Mm. far fewer in Los Angeles than there were in New York. And far fewer being made as well. Mm. So that when a French film is being made currently, um, it's not unlikely that somebody would favor the idea of having William Shatner in Mm. it. Fuck does William Shatner have to do with the French culture? I got nothing against Bill Shatner, mind you, but you hear these weird propositions it's about not... who should be in your film in order to give it just a little bit of panache, a little bit of a little bit of color, a little bit of, of uh, acceptability, and for that matter, the stories that are being told should perhaps maybe um, fit. William Shatner's abilities a little bit more so what if what if what if the part that was originally meant to be a French Drug addict was now an American drug addict who just happens to be living in Paris better for Shatner, no? Mm -hmm. Well, he's a fucking Canadian. Maybe he should be a Canadian and so on and so forth Well, pretty soon the whole thing gets modulated down to why don't we all make the same films? Mm. Why don't we all?
3: That's my point. Mm. When you started making films, did you think about being an actor? Ever?
2: No, I never thought about being an actor. I'd like to now, but I never thought about it then.
3: You really would now? Yes. Uh Seriously, you'd
2: like to do a a big role in a film? Not necessarily a big role, but I would like to have the kind of um, latter-day prominence that uh, John Huston had Mm in films. Um, I thought it was a very attractive way to... I think of it as a very attractive way to make money uh, and a very easy way to make money if people want you to act. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very difficult way to make money if, if directors and producers and audiences are indifferent to your talent, but mm-hmm. otherwise it's quite easy.
3: What did you want to start making films in the first place? What was... what was You had choices, presumably? It was
2: sort of an accident, actually. I started off, in fact, wanting to teach philosophy. So I studied philosophy. Then I wound up to a long series of events in my life. I wound up being a disc jockey in Japan and writing to support myself. To, uh, writing about film uh, for the local paper. A jockey on a, on a radio station. On a radio station. Yeah. And uh, and writing about about film for the Mainichi Times at the same time. Uh, for the Nippon times there was a writer by the name of Donald Ritchie who became an extraordinary uh, uh, interpreter and critic of of, uh, Japanese film, living in Tokyo simultaneously when I was living there. Uh, and, And so I would go down and review Japanese movies and actually even have the opportunity, I even had a small job uh, translating Japanese movies into English but uh, it, it wasn't the uh, the perfect translation wasn't it the exact translation mm. it was somebody else had done that and then I tried to make it a little bit smoother yeah. uh, a little bit more uh, understandable uh, but occasionally I would just make up the movie and make it more sure. interesting yeah. so I destroyed single-handedly a number of really great movies because mm. the studio that I was working for was Shochiku and the primary director was uh, What's his name? Uh, the Tokyo Story. And I was advising Chochiku as to which films would come to the United States, would, I thought, what, whether the audience would be there for them. Now, at this time, of course, this is the, in the 50s, and the, uh, the coming into prominence in Japanese movies were really some pretty fine directors, and yeah. the best known of whom, of course, was Kurosawa. I then uh, was going to do graduate work mm-hmm. uh, in philosophy at uh, the University of Benares in India. Mm-hmm. and do studies in Hindu theosophy.
3: What had taken you out of America in, in such a graphic way?
2: Well, I'd already, I'd already started. I'd already been around the world by the time I was 17.
3: Why? I don't
2: know. Uh, did you maybe.
3: have a... Were, were your parents very hit?
2: No, quite the opposite. Uh-huh. Um, it was more a defection than it oh, was right. a, an urging.
3: Where did you grow up? In New York?
2: I grew up in New York.
3: Yeah.
2: And my folks were sort of middle class Jews and mm. In my particular case, they were very unlike even their own friends in that um, they were alcoholics. My mother was an alcoholic. Very unusual for a Jewish family. So, in effect, without making this too labored uh, and too psychological, I wanted to get out of there. Mm -hmm. And so I started traveling very early from the time I was 14 on. From
3: 14?
2: Yeah.
3: I left my home. Fundamentally, when I was. You
2: carried on with your education, obviously, if you ended up doing philosophy. Ah, well, I went to a school that only took Christian boys. It was its first year, there's the opening of the school, and I read about it in the paper, and I went down for an interview. Right. Uh, and I was the only Jewish kid, but it was the first year the school started. They needed a, a, an enrollment, they needed. Students and so they admitted me and uh, that got me out of the city right off the bat and then I was playing in a band in Mexico and then
3: so in other words you you saw sort of that continuing education as being uh, a way of getting out or did you actually think I must educate myself? Well uh, the
2: education I wanted to get out period and and, then the education I don't know I suppose um, that came later thinking you know that being smart was a good thing that didn't come to me that early. Right. In fact, I'll tell you, uh, now that I think about it, when I went to this school, because the school was, was in its very first year, mm-hmm. and because it was desperate to have an enrollment, they permitted anybody in the school, and they couldn't get people to go to the school. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, it was a boarding school. I was not music
3: school like that.
2: They took in anybody, and, and most of the kids that they took in were uh, mentally defective, or psychologically defective in some way. Uh, They were wards of the church. They had no parents. They were orphans. Uh, uh, They were backward and tough, pretty twisted kids. Mm -hmm. And so I got to be thinking that I was bright simply because I was brighter than all of them. That's the Mm -hmm. first time it ever occurred to me. And I continued, even then, and all the way through college, to flunk every fucking course. But still, I was smart, not every course, but I was smart in certain courses. In college, I began to get interested in film a little bit. I was interested in film, of course, like like everybody is now,
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. But I didn't have any special feeling for it or any notion that I wanted to be in it. That came very late in my life. That came, first of all, I wrote a play when I was 21, and the play won some kind of a contest. And that was the first time I even thought about theater, film, uh, anything seriously. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Uh, Then I had this job in Japan. uh, And then I got married in Japan. And by the time all of that happened, I didn't think that I could continue on with this notion of being a philosopher, which I had been encouraged by a couple of professors to Mm -hmm. think was a a reasonable uh, thing for me to be uh, aspiring to. Mm -hmm. So I moved on to television when I got back and and uh, and finally worked up the courage to think that being the director was the right thing, but I didn't. But you, always had, you must have had
3: a hell of a drive. You so say you came back and used to television. People don't just fall into television.
2: You've got to have some kind of confidence. And I suppose so, but and I certainly wasn't a shy fellow. No. Uh, I wasn't somebody reticent, but I try to think, of, I've often uh, uh, looked at other people who got jobs directing and, uh, and wondered or read about how they got them, and when mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't that confident. In fact, I had to write and produce for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I can remember I was working for David Susskind in New York on a thing called The Play of the Week on Channel 13 doing live uh, plays of the week and on Monday nights people stayed home from doing whatever they were supposed to be doing like going to the movies or going to local boxing matches or what have you in order to see the first night of the play of the week and it played for six nights in a row it was directed by famous Broadway and off-Broadway directors and these were plays that were being produced largely because nobody would nobody would make movies out of any of these mm-hmm. plays because once the movie companies like MGM had bought the rights to any given the theatrical rights any given play, you couldn't get them to do them live for free on mm-hmm. educational television. So the plays in fact were then being written by Ennui or Giroudou or, or, uh, or Shakespeare mm-hmm. or uh, Alexander Knox or Graham Greene uh, mm-hmm and things of this sort, plays that would never get made uh, by Hollywood. So that's how I got my education. I read thousands of them because my job was to help pick those Mm -hmm. plays and then to make what very, very unnoticeable adaptations had Mm -hmm. to be made because basically they would have been played authentically. Although every now and then, when Shakespeare neglected to introduce somebody properly at the door, I'd write a little Mm -hmm. introduction of my own, Mm -hmm. a few lines, and see if I could get away with it, Mm -hmm. you know. I once met a curator
3: of, of the Museum of Modern Art in Chicago, who was a complete pothead, and a, and a painter, and, and they, he and this other guy were used to get very stoned and go around the gallery adding trees <laughs> on paintings. They so, were very good technically, and uh, no one, no one has yet noticed that this, this is <laughs> the, the, the their,
2: their contribution. Well, yeah. I did that, and um, and along around that time. Uh, Then I moved out here and a whole bunch of things happened, but Finally having then created the monkeys television show yourself. Well Bert Schneider when I went into Partnership, I had been uh, a sort of an out-of-work Musician in Mexico and had uh, had a lot of misadventures uh, Which had nothing to do with music playing at the Boom Boom Club in Acapulco in 1953 and God knows what all I was doing. Thinking to play the bass, by the way, mm-hmm. by actually singing the notes and strumming with either hand. Either hand, largely because one would blister very quickly, sure. and then I'd switch it around and go to the other hand like that. And they thought, oh fuck, here's a guy who can play the bass with either hand, let's put him up front. And I was playing with two good musicians, but they put me down there. Anyway, I don't remember what we were talking about, my defecting, or but, but these were the kinds of things that I was the doing, And The see. monkeys by themselves. And that led to the monkeys. Yeah. Uh, because of my own misadventures, I wrote it, and I wrote it before the Beatles existed. When the Beatles came along, finally people took interest in this. Is that right? Show. Yeah. And you changed nothing? First time I wrote the, that show, was um, uh, it was about a folk, um, what do you call it, a folk, uh, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, a, a folk... Uh, and then it became a rock group. Yeah. Uh, th- this was finally uh, written by Paul Mazursky and he Larry Tucker and they wrote the pilot as I recall for yeah. the show. Did
3: he direct one as well? Yeah.
2: No. I think we were too concerned that if Paul would direct that he wouldn't write. Yeah, yeah. So we probably repressed his career. Yeah. Very but good. he had never written for film before until that show. And none of the directors who directed the the, the monkey the show had ever directed before.
3: He brought up a point about the monkeys, which I thought was kind of funny. So we were talking about, you know, the way people edit now. And he sadly said, well, I don't know, maybe all that stuff that uh, Rayfelsen and I did. You know, the, that monkeys basically started, at, you know, the whole concept of MTV and, and a I'd way of cutting and a way of looking at, you know...
2: It did, and it's, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I didn't think it did, of course, but uh, uh, it, it, it has become so strangely articulated
1: mm-hmm. now
2: that next week it's going to open the Telluride Festival, making this very point, you know, that this was sort of like this, you well,
3: know, What do you mean? Tell me more.
2: Well, ahead, had. This movie, I, I, yeah. my first movie, and, uh, the movie... Uh, if you put on certain—have you ever seen it? I okay. Well, if you put on certain sequences now, you'd be for sure thinking that thing, that was made just last week for yeah. for MTV. It had an insane amount of cuts in it.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, in fact, most of the processes, because we didn't have any money to make the film, most of the processes that kind of charged the film with effect, we had to invent. Uh, it took me nine months to edit the film.
3: Why, at that point, was that a challenging and interesting idea for you?
2: First of all, it was incredibly self congratulatory. Uh, to show you how conceited this issue is for me and how absurd, um, I began to think after I made Head that I would count the cuts in every film that I made, mm-hmm. and if they didn't decrease, that I wasn't improving as a director. Uh-huh therefore, in the outset, I tried to make as many cuts as possible, and now, as few. This is not entirely true for any film wackos, in case they would read this but it was a conceit that I had in mind, Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, it was true that when I did Five Easy Pieces, there were so many, and many, many fewer in King of Marvin Gardens, and so on and so forth. So that was one of the main reasons, because nobody else had done it, so I decided I wanted to do it quick and fast and edit. The second thing was that I didn't have a great deal of faith in the talent, so I had to have some kind of stylistic uh, triumph. We do that, don't we, directors? We yes. Do
3: that when we're not happy with a performance, we kind of go, oh, well, we'll cut around. Look, the we're most confident. pathetic
2: thing that I think that has been done into this culture today is not to give talent an opportunity to be consistent, yeah. and, uh, and talent an opportunity to be articulate. So that when, who could I use as an example, Janet Jackson does a, an MTV uh, video or Madonna or Michael Jackson for that matter, you never see them dance in a single shot for more than about four seconds. Well, how do I know whether they're good dancers or not? I love good dancing and I could only tell if I could see a sustained piece, but if somebody's going to twist them upside down and divide them into Mm. a thousand parts and then superimpose footage on top of that, you're not going to know that. You're going to know something else. Yeah. And it's a betrayal in an odd way. Well, I knew that in 1965 because I didn't have very talented people. So, I had to go make up something, Mm. and since the television show was one kind of thing, by the time I, I got around to making the movie, Everybody said to me, don't make this movie. There's nobody who wants to see a movie with the monkeys in it. And I said, well, I'm doing this for me. I did the TV show for everybody mm-hmm. else. I want to make the movie. So Nicholson, who was an out-of-work actor at the time, and I decided to write the thing. He he structured the whole thing on an acid trip. Well, there's a lot of blinky, blinky, blinky in the acid trip, mm-hmm. just to start with, you know. And, and and I I had some other kind of vision about what, what the movie could be. But... We, it would be interesting for you to look at it because mm. uh, there were one-frame cuts, that, uh, it was Im- almost impossible to make a one-frame cut yeah, in yeah. those days. Two was the minimum. I, I took black and white film and then impacted the film with color right. uh, so that it looks now like what you can do in two seconds with, oh, no, with the true. synthesizer. Yeah. You know. Anyway, in those days I was trying to make myself look good, I think, more than yeah. anything else. It was a time. As well. it was appropriate, wasn't it? Yeah, it's your first movie too. It's yeah. a time to play.
3: Yeah,
2: you know, and also a time to, I mean, doing yeah. a picture with the monkeys. Well, I was discouraged from doing that because everybody, everybody who was who had a sensible point of view in life hated the monkeys because mm. they were a rip-off of the Beatles or the Stones or what have you. Since they outsold the, the Beatles in this country, Did and, they? Uh, oh yeah, mm. they were more popular than the Beatles in England. Mm. Yes, they they had uh, something like I think the monkeys, all of whom, by the way, I quite liked as individuals, mm. and, and there was a measure of talent there. It's yeah. just that they weren't profound actors, they yeah. weren't the Marx Brothers, they weren't um, uh, the Three Stooges even, and yet they were doing that kind of comedy. Did that give
3: you some financial security?
2: Yeah, well, more than I ever dreamed that I was going to have. It didn't give me a lot, but it gave me enough to gamble. Right. Is that important? And what happened next? well, I, wanted, I, wanted, I had always wanted, before Burt and I became partners, I had always wanted I had an idea in my mind about what kind of film company could function in, in America. And uh, and it was sort of a little bit like the the Nouvelle Vague mm. and a little bit like the English Woodfall productions, mm. like Tony Richardson and people of that sort of were making I thought, very, so to this day incredibly underappreciated movies, yeah. but they were making tough, hard, uh, working man movies mm-hmm. and and, um, and I thought that that you know that America had plenty of good directors it's just that the system was was not permitting them to come to the front to the mm-hmm. for, to the fore and the kind of movie fair that was most popular then was like Darling Lily or something of mm-hmm. that sort so Bert and I you know when we started I said I wanted to do a, a certain kind of film which we eventually did do so, but. The Monkeys came first because we were actually had two films ready to go. One, which becomes a very amusing story, although very long, was called Midnight Plus One. One that was the film. And the other was The Monkey Show, which mm-hmm. m- hit immediately. The first novel was Midnight Plus One. And that was a novel that when I first went to Cannes for Easy Rider and for Head, which were showing in the same year, uh, it turned out Orson Welles wanted to make into a movie. Uh, he had read the book and found out we had the rights to it. So I left Khan immediately upon arriving and flew to Rome with Berg to uh, meet with Orson. Uh, and, in fact, Orson did come over here to and stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel for quite a substantial mm-hmm. length of time, I think seven or eight months in a suite, uh, writing what we thought was a, a script for Midnight Plus One. But, in fact, he was simply using that to... Money that we were furnishing him with to, to complete some project that he had, mm-hmm. had uh, hadn't quite returned to for several years mm-hmm. and owed delivery on to mm-hmm. a bunch of other people. Nonetheless, the money that we took, that uh, we made from the monkey, we, we monkeys we used to finance Easy Rider. In other words, we bet it all wow. on Dennis and. That was the kind of film that. So the first film BBS made was Head, this Mm -hmm. one we've been speaking of that I directed and Jack wrote. And the second film was Easy Rider. After Easy Rider, I began to feel the so-called ease of economic pressure.
3: So at that time, you, you talk about Dennis,
2: talk about Jack. This is like a gang of you hanging out together here. I knew Dennis. For a long time, I had met him in a stripper's house in New York uh, on the east side of the village, in the east village, in the 50s, I think. Mm -hmm. Dennis was already a successful actor and already a drunk. And I was in the stripper's place, Brandy Case, I'll never forget her name. Uh, and it was a railroad flat. Brandy or Brandy? Brandy. Brandy. And, and I stepped on this guy, a body on the floor, and it was Dennis, and yeah. I, I apologize. And then I kind of recognized him from craft, theater, or, or movies that he, Western movie that he had made and yeah. succeeded in. He was very young and very handsome, and oh, I yeah. thought a fantastic actor. And during uh, subsequent years, when I came to California, and Dennis was trying to work, but couldn't work too often as an actor, and painting quite a bit, and and taking uh, pictures and was married to Brooke, we hung out quite a bit. His daughter and my son were best friends. My son was later to make a pornographic movie starring his daughter at the age of sixteen or fifteen. Hopper. and I were pals, and you know, we would see each other every now and then. and And he said uh, that he wanted to do one of the monkeys episodes, and I mm-hmm. said, no. You won't do it real well, number one, he wanted to be a director, and number mm-hmm. two, let me get around to it my own way, Dennis. I really do think that you can do something fantastic, but mm-hmm. it shouldn't be a monkey's episode. And then the, I brought him in with Michael McLure,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that's the beginnings of Easy Rider, how mm-hmm. it just got started. Who else
3: was around at that time, I mean, the, that given that at any time you could say, oh, these people I thought. were... In that bringing... group of people? <laughs> well kind of doing interesting work. Uh, You know, you talked about sort of the Nouvelle Vague being an influence and with films, and and clearly that's a great time we're talking about. Very, lot of, a lot of um, pompous posing, but also some very interesting and creative people.
2: Um, And a lot of energy at that time. There are a lot of people that I didn't know. uh, The people who, who I did know were the people who I sort of sought out and asked to make pictures for the company, uh, like Peter Bogdanovich, for example. I saw a picture that he had made called Targets, I think, was mm-hmm. Targets. And it was in a 16-millimeter picture that he had done for... The film with Boris For uh, Yeah, with Boris Karloff, with Peter playing, you know, uh, yeah, the lead in the film. And uh, and I thought the work was interesting enough, so mm-hmm. I called him and asked him if he like to do something, and, Mm -hmm. And so he joined this full, but we hadn't known each other at all before then. And Jack and Dennis, although they they knew each other, they knew each other as actors. They didn't socialize very Mm -hmm. much, at least not to my recollection. Jack had been in a lot of failed motorcycle movies, uh, and was getting the B parts, Mm -hmm. and Hopper had been in one or two of the same, and so they knew each other that way. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Carol Eastman, the writer. Mm -hmm. uh, Trying to think of some of the people that were kind of hanging in those days Monty Hellman, mm-hmm. a little bit more through Jack than anybody else, uh, the Hungarian cameraman, Vilmar Sigmund and Laszlo Kovacs. But most of my friends were writers, novelists, and, and musicians. Most of the people that I knew then and know now uh, didn't work in the movie. And we had a very sequestered life, mm-hmm. in fact. I had no agent, I didn't even have a lawyer. Bert did all the business, and we we had a building, and in that building there was madness going on all the time, a lot of political stuff. Bert was quite close to uh, the Black Panther Party. and I was, in a way, p- part of that stuff. There were a lot of religious fanatics who were um, hanging out in the building. Everybody was trying to hang out in that building.
3: Lots of drugs?
2: A lot of drug dealers and a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, a lot of acid. Yeah. Yeah, you know, acid and grass. Uh, a lot of musicians. Do you
3: think there's anything like that now? Well, look,
2: let me let me try to finish up one thought, Mike, because I'm not very get, I'm not very good at this at characterizing eras and stuff. See, I didn't think we were all that special to start mm. with. I never had this inflated vision that either my work or Dennis's work or whatnot. I mean, I thought we were lucky. Mm-hmm. Is what I thought. Isn't luck putting yourself in the right place at the right time? Yeah, but it's also, I was once court martialed when I was in the army and I was being sentenced uh, to go to Korea. And, I was, and, and, and there was a, a kid who came from New York with me. And his name was Evergisto Remos. And Evergisto and I were buddies. And we were both going to Korea. And we stopped after a very arduous, difficult flight in Tacoma, Washington, which was the shipping off point for all of the Asian conflict. And you either went to Japan or Okinawa or Korea. And there was a line to stamp you which way you going when you get on the boat, which boat you were getting on, what division you were being attached to, and what your role was going to be. And it was quite a long line, about five, six hundred people on it. And I said, come on, Evagista, let's, Let's take a walk. And he said, What well, do you want to take a walk for, man? Well, we're gonna walk around this fucking base. So I said, Well, Evergista, we gotta create some luck. Otherwise, we're both gonna be dead in Korea mm-hmm. in a week. They, I had hit a guy, I had hit a sergeant, so they really wanted my ass mm-hmm. dead in basic training. So he said, How do you do that? I said, Well, you widen the circumference of chance. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did, and I wound up being a disc jockey in Japan, and a whole bunch of other motherfuckers got killed in Korea. I found out they needed a disc jockey. I had never been a disc jockey, but I was the best disc jockey in the world, and rather than be a clerk, typist, and a tent in the 49th parallel, wouldn't it be better if I could serve my country more completely with my own talent, mm-hmm. my home practiced, and gifted voice. And they said, yeah, I'm mother- put that motherfucker in the- We need him. Bam! Stampy like that. And Evergisto became a typewriter mechanic in Japan. Right. Well, in a way, it wasn't simply the right time at the right place. Mm. In a way, there was a certain ambition, a stark ambition. There was a contrariness, the feeling that Jesus Christ we have to do everything the way everybody has always told us mm-hmm. to do them. Now I had that in my personality since day 1 and at 14 I was already off trying to figure out another way to do things. So mm-hmm. when it came to movies I figured the same thing isn't there another way to do things. Mm-hmm. And I met somebody who said yes I think there is we'll have to do it we'll have to do it together and that was Burt and and it was entirely his doing that it got done. I might have provided some of the energy for it, some of the ideas for it, and a lot of the talent for it. But it took an absolute genius to create a system in which this could this could flourish. And while well, the first day of shooting uh, on Easy Rider, Hopper, uh, they were shooting, uh, improvising in New Orleans, uh, an acid trip mm-hmm. as Carnival went by. Hopper got into an argument with the cameraman and snatched the camera out of his hand and hit him in the head with it, sent him to the hospital, a whole bunch of, wasn't like that. Because he he, he he couldn't imagine that his eye wasn't going to be looking through the lens. I mean, the at that moment. Mean, no, Dennis. Dennis. And yeah. when the cameraman tried to take the camera away from him, <laughs> Dennis hit him. Now that picture was going to be canceled right then and there. Yeah. Okay. Everybody had gone haywire. Well, they don't take him some dope. Anyway, the point is that uh, that for, for all of these. Uh, talented and somewhat self-destructive and reckless temperaments that were around it really required somebody who could identify with them, somebody they could look up to, and somebody that they could talk to mm. uh, to, to, to congeal this as um, as a club, mm. as a movement, as a, a bunch of guys. And it wasn't simply real estate, it was mm. the brains of Bert. And then we all just kind of like fell into it. How long did your relationship with Bird last? Well, I saw him last night at dinner. Uh, <laughs> uh, how long did the movie thing... We just we quit the movie thing. We, yeah. we, we, we decided to quit when we were ahead. I needed to concentrate more on the directing, but I had things in my life I wanted to concentrate on. Mm. And I didn't want to collect the rent anymore in the building and do mm. stuff like that. So uh, the last thing that we did uh, that bore the imprimatur, mm. BBS was uh, Hearts and Minds, a documentary, Mm -hmm. but I had very little to do with it. I had something to do with the choice of the director Mm -hmm. and very little else. This was Bert's passion and um, he went off uh, to continue with his passions and I went off to Mm -hmm. try to discover what mine were, which was you know, what would be the next film Mm -hmm. and what kind of thing would I do and Mm -hmm. how would I do it without him and so on and so forth. It's a very rude awakening I must say. Because I didn't know anything about the business, I didn't have an agent, I didn't know, I didn't, I, nobody knew who I was. Uh, that went on for quite some time. I was so little known, in fact, that uh, somebody actually posed as me and raised an enormous amount of money to make films in Europe using my name, uh, and finally, some people called me, and I wouldn't, I didn't even answer the phone, uh, that was another thing, I didn't answer phone calls I didn't get any to speak of. So. I didn't have any business, I had no life. I felt like it was an ward more than anything else. I was completely protected, and it was as if I were diseased. That was a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it was a very good thing in one sense, but when you get ejected from the ward or quit, or run out there, you're mm. a little bit like that character in Ashby's movie, you know, walking mm. around with your pants too short, and, and a whole lot of the world has been reinvented, or invented anyway, uh, while you've been gone. Uh, so there was sort of some rude awakenings.
3: What about now? How do you feel about making films now?
2: When I get around to doing it, I'm enthusiastic. I'm never enthusiastic about it in between. I rather hate it. And what I don't like about it, I think if I had to focus on it, what I like about it, at least apart, of course, from getting it made to that whole process, which is a, a bit of an ordeal, mm-hmm. for somebody like me it is, I become some kind of person that I don't particularly like when I'm Edgy and rude and caustic, and uh, it's the only thing that counts. It's the only mm. thing that is worth breathing, and you become very self-inflated. And you know, no matter how modest you choose to yeah. uh, to behave on the set, um, still there's 150 questions a minute being asked of you, and you're the only one who can give the answer. You know, it's a hell of a trip to go on, and that's good. You. You 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 certainly have the privilege of, of focus as few people in the world will ever have it for that mm. period of time. You have that kind of prerogative or right uh, to 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 literally deservedly shut out every other notion in life, mm. every other human being, every because you're making a fucking movie. Uh, have you behaved badly under that banner? In the past? I would, I, yes, I should think I have. Yeah. Uh, but it depends on who you would ask. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody that I've worked with that I haven't worked with more than once. Right. So it seems that it's a tolerable excess. No, was more, how
3: do you feel about it? How do I feel about... About how you look back on yourself, like you know, on this movie, say, Mountains of the Moon, or you look back on, you know, Black Widow or something like that, that some movies you think, God, I was, was not a very nice person. I made that There's movie. only
2: one experience that I've ever had making a movie that I regret. All the others are measured by the same standard. Yeah,
3: I'd agree. When I was
2: there, was I doing the best job I knew how, whatever that took? And if the answer was yes, number one, I feel the same way about all the movies, one basically as much as the other. Sure. Number two, I've never seen them. Yeah. To find out whether I'm wasting my energy liking one more or less than the other. I mean, you saw them up until the point that you said goodbye to them. Finish it? Yeah. In the old days, watch 150 prints from beginning to end. Really? Make sure that those 150 prints went to the right 150 theaters. Mm-hmm. Kubrick used to do it with 700 to 1,000. I know. In those days, certain amount of prints came off the negative and certainly came off the mm-hmm. copy of the negative. In my case, uh, it was probably some ego trip. I wanted to make sure that the first prints were all good. And uh, you do that and spend as much time as I do in the editing room, you, why would you want to see yeah, it yeah. absolutely. Why would I ever want to fucking return to it? I, I, uh, once I was watching television, I have a tendency to go around the channels fast. and. And I landed on this movie and I stopped for a bit, like I could stop on the news or like I could mm. stop on, on an assassination or, 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 or uh, 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 an athletic event uh, and kind of stick it out for a few minutes. I stuck it out with this particular movie and it was only after a couple of minutes that mm. I recognized that it was one of my own. And it didn't have any of the well-known actors in it. It mm-hmm. was all the lesser-known actors. I hadn't seen it since uh, 30 years or 20-some-odd years or something mm-hmm. like that. And I sat there actually saying, hey, this isn't bad. Mm. Oh, I think I'll stick it out for a little while. And I said, holy God,
1: yeah.
2: it's Stay Hungry of yeah. all things, a picture I made. And then I zapped off it. But I don't particularly, I, I when I look at uh, uh, a frame or two of a movie that I made, of course, there'll be a retrospective kind of deal where they'll show 10 mm. seconds of this movie and 20 seconds of that movie. I literally had a nervous breakdown watching that happen this year. It was the first one I'd ever mm. had. I freaked out entirely. But even so, what I remembered at that point when I saw just those few seconds of the film was how difficult it was to get that. I didn't remember what a good time it was. No, no, I agree. And I don't think when I look back on making movies that I look back on it as a good time, no. which I hear so many people talk about. I relish so much these good times that everybody has while they're working because for me it's hard work
1: mm-hmm. and I have
2: a very li- I, I, I have a sense that I'm a laborer when I'm working on a movie mm-hmm. and I don't think I'm so fucking smart I think I'm only going to get the thing right if I do it a lot of times mm-hmm. and get lucky a little bit and work at it hard
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's that no, no inspiration is no, going no, to come hard work, to me
3: hard work's a key thing huh?
2: it's, it's just that it's, it's hard it's
3: a key thing it's really hard work. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of time I watch people, and I think they don't work hard enough.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's true about ninety percent of the movies. Well, now uh, I, I I think that's worse than that. I think that they uh, they shouldn't have gotten the job. Uh, that they should have worked a whole lot harder to get that job. Mm-hmm. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. But I've had many people say the same thing about my pictures. So used mm-hmm. to say about these things. I had an uncle who said the same thing about my pictures all the time. Mm-hmm. Hated them all.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, occasionally, he would like one, and then he became my uncle. But I was a distant cousin when he didn't like the pictures. And he was a film writer. Mm-hmm. He wrote a whole bunch of pictures for Hitchcock and Lubitsch whom I did not meet through my family, but through my wife's family, and very late in life. I found out that I had a relative in the movie, but when it was too late. But he used to hate my show, gave me a good perspective actually. Do you read reviews? I can't read them, Um, I, I, I get them. I find myself saying I don't read them, but I want to read them. But then I can't read them. I get them, and they're on my desk, and I, I start to turn to the first one, and I say, Well, what? What are you What are you going to get out of it? You know, you go, look. The first picture I made was universally despised. The second picture I made got uh, was uh, it's a few years later. It was three years between jobs, two or three. Years and, uh, and it was five easy pieces and it got a lot of acclaim. But the same people who claimed the film had written so degradingly about Head. And when I first read that criticism on my first film, I had to immediately, in order to stay sane, make a declaration that they didn't know what they were talking about. Sure. Well, I wasn't about to accredit them with brains and perception uh, for the second picture. Because then I would have been a complete hypocrite, number one, and and also it would have meant that they were right about the first one, which I didn't think they were right about. They they could have been right, but they could just as easily have been wrong about the second one. Do you follow what I'm saying? Sure, yeah. And that it was a rather ephemeral thing. So um, I tried to get out of that habit real fast. And also I knew I was never going to make a lot of films. So uh,
3: how, how do you judge
2: the films that you've made? I think I just told you, Mike. I think I, the best way for me is did I do as good a job as I okay. could, yeah. you know. And I kind of know which areas I put myself out on.
3: No, but I mean, there's a difference, isn't it? You say you did the best job you could. My experience is that, let's hope we always do that, you know, pretty much. Sometimes you get, as you would say, lucky, and some some work better than others.
2: Well, I look at it slightly um, differently. I think the whole process, you see, the whole process of arriving at what movie you decide to make begins that work, and that uh, there are people who don't work hard enough right at that juncture. They can't stand to be out of work. Their uh, uh, families are bleeding. Their um, egos are wanting in some horrible horrible manner. They can't stand to be idle uh, and they have no other pleasures in life. I could give you a list of hundreds of reasons why people might work that I haven't been able to to do. So for me part of that hard work is is deciding that I want to work in the first place. And quite often I feel that I'm not working hard enough at that process. Do you really want to are you in the mood to do this again? Do you really want to do that now, or would you rather go to Yemen? Mm-hmm. Now, which would you rather do? I'd rather go to Yemen. Absolutely. You know. And then finally, I will have Yemened myself right the fuck out of consciousness and say, "Well, I guess it's time to make a living." There's a few people bleeding now, or I, my ego needs that, or I, in fact, maybe there's something I want to say, or whatever the. The thing is and then I'll get around to working again. And one of the horrors for me is that at least in the past that time was rather impulsive. It took me over a year to write a char- about a character in totally different places in the world with different professions, uh, drifting around in my imagination and drifting around from place to place in fact as a character for five easy pieces before I couldn't even figure out what in the fuck I wanted to do, but I knew I was attached to the character, and then I got Carol to write a script about that character. But ten weeks later, I shot the movie, ripping the pages out, having her tell me what, in fact, the location was she just wrote for so that I could find it, or my calling her and saying, this is the location, stick it in the script. Mm -hmm. like a ferry going across from the mainland to the island on which Bobby Dupy plays, meets his family, returns to his family and that impulse I'm completely deprived of now, I feel I'm deprived of it now, or I've deprived myself of it, so that um, betwixt the time that that original idea comes up that you want to do a character that's sort of drifting about, and the time you make the film four years can go and in those four years, by the time you get to the fourth year, and you've gone through so much effort to get the film made, you're wondering, why in the hell are you making it? It doesn't seem very spontaneous mm. anymore. It seems rather shopworn. And then you have to go about almost destroying it in order to make it fresh for yourself, mm. in order to make it enduring for yourself. Good. We're
3: done. Okay. That's very good. (laughs)